There we are. Welcome, everybody. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm uh, Jeffrey Mishlove. I'm here with Gail Hasen. Uh, we're going to be sharing uh, all kinds of things with you for the next 90 minutes. We're going to be taking your questions. Uh, we're very happy to have you join us. We scheduled it at this hour so that some of Gail's friends uh, and shaman people from Mongolia uh, may actually uh, be at least tune in to our live stream broadcast. But I think it's important to begin by uh, setting the stage. And I know, Gail, you were telling me earlier, this is a very emotional time for you because you have a person you've been close with for three years, even though you have never met him face to face, who at this very moment is dying. He's, he's, he's transitioning and in a peaceful state, but not in a state of being able to speak or that type of consciousness now. And I've heard this from his daughter who hears it from the hospital, because as you know, during COVID, it's nearly impossible to be with someone when they're in the hospital now. And I just wanna say that I've learned so much from this man and how connection can happen on such a deep level even when we physically have never touched each other or seen each other. And I actually never even had a photograph of who I was talking to until his daughter sent me one uh, yesterday. And this wonderful man, Hugh Trollson, has spent his last years doing a lot of spiritual work. And he spoke to me a few days before entering the hospital on Monday to tell me that he was very at peace with, with his, you know, is, is the end of his life and that he could go in a peaceful manner and knowing that he'd done in the best of everything he could. And it was such a beautiful thing to share this deep, intimate moment with someone who our conversations have only been on a phone. It's not, he's not, he wasn't in the modern world with, a, with an iPhone or I couldn't call him on a computer and do a Zoom with him. So it was only on your old landline. And he sent me so many different uh, printouts in the mail of things about conspiracy theaters, theories and things about um, love and forgiveness and, 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 and channels and places he thought I should have talks with people and shows I should be on. And in fact, the last show I was on before this a few days ago was the one that he had connected me to be on. And so I, I, I can't speak enough about how I didn't realize you could get this deeply connected to someone by only sharing your words with each other, but really speaking from the heart, even though there was never a physical hug or a handshake or a touch like that. And so what I was hoping to do right now is I'm excited to be on the show. I do have tissues here in case there's any little emotional things. I'm an emotional person, but it's not on any bad or negative way. It's just that I feel a lot. And what I'd like to share before we start our questions is a poem that he sent to me for New Year's Eve. And then we can move from there. But you, wherever you are transitioning now, I just want you to know, I know you're surrounded in angels and love and light because that's the being that he is. His poem, what will you do in 2022? This was a New Year's card. 
What will you do in 2022? Understand that there are only two types of energies available to you. Negative and positive are the energies at play. So choose wisely each and every day. Negative energies deal in hate and blame, and that will bring you only shame. Positive energy deals in love and light, and that will bring you delight. What you think about, you bring about. So use your free will to manifest a better world, not just for you, but also for others in this world too. Forgiveness, love, and prayer are words to guide you as you choose. So again, choose widely, wisely, and may God bless you. Happy New Year. Well, that was lovely. And it also speaks to the fact that uh, you, Gail Hasen, it's really, uh, it's pronounced Hyson. Many people say yeah. Hyson. I've been mispronouncing <laughs> your name for all these programs. <laughs> it's okay. I just like, okay. <laughs> Hyson, Gail Hyson, you are one of the most open-hearted people I have ever known in my life. And I think that has a lot to do with how your life has taken you to uh, be here with me now and, and to have done all this amazing work that you've done in the area of shamanism and in the area of remote viewing. Uh, so I'll start in now with some of the questions. This is from a person named, uh, you know, people on YouTube can use names. I don't, so I don't know if this is an actual name or a YouTube name, Genix May who is asking about remote viewing and shamanism and how, how are they related? She's saying, or he is saying, is remote viewing a kind of shamanistic talent or is it something separate? Well, I think that um, remote viewing in the idea that we're saying we're going to another place this is something that shamans are using when they're going to say, maybe retrieve something that they feel would be an energy that could heal you, or they, they're doing things remotely, but I don't feel like it's the same thing like remote viewing, because I feel like the shamanism thing has to do with dealing with the spirit and the spirits of nature, animals, objects, things that give you information. With remote viewing, you're, there are so many people who have been taught remote viewing, so they actually follow a specific uh, form that they're doing or you know, way in their mind that they approach the remote viewing. And it's mostly often been to you know, describe a target and the target might be symbolic of something else, but um, the part of accessing information to me is the same thing, but the method or what they're using and doing it for are two different things entirely. Okay. And now I've got a question from Johnny Panrick or Panricky. I, I, forgive me, Johnny, if I'm mispronouncing your name. His question is, do you have experiences of shamanistic practices being applied to lift people out of substance abuse 
uh, or substance dependence on alcohol or anything similar? Well, I could share a story about that. It's not my personal shamanic story. Mostly the things that I've done with people have been around the areas of death and losing someone and that more of those kind of things. Um, but I did see actual results of shamanic work on alcoholism. And what it was, was we had this, I have to say of all the shamans, she was the youngest shaman who'd ever come to my home. She was 28 years old at the time. And she was also the most beautiful shaman I had ever seen, like a model kind of strikingly beautiful. So when she turned into her uh, spirit of, I think it was an old man, I'm not sure. It's amazing to see the transformation of this young, beautiful person become this wise old shaman man, like a tra you know, like transform into this. And we had a gathering here for only Mongolian people that lived in the Bay Area. And they were coming up to get healings with her because they don't have a Mongolian shaman living in Berkeley necessarily. So when one comes in from Mongolia, the word gets out. And um, I offered my place as a place for her to do this, you know, shamanic work with all these people. And they came and this one particular man, I was told later what it was all about. These aren't, you know, I'm, I'm giving translation information after the fact of watching what was going on. And she had done, um, and they explained it to me because when I was watching, I was a little bit uh, worried for the person, but she did intensive um, whipping and on this large Mongolian man. And he had, wasn't like he, he sat there taking every single, you know, whipping that she was doing with him. And it was very intense. I'm not gonna go into the full details, but I was watching and watching. And then one of the people said to me, she's doing this because he has been a, not a good person. He has been an alcoholic and he has been drinking too much and he has lost control of the alcohol. And she said, he's doing this to get the negative energy of the alcoholism out of his body and shed him of this negativity. Well, it was an intense process and it involved, there was some, I think there was maybe even some weeping, I'm not sure, but there was a lot that went on and you could see he was going through a lot of, of, of letting go of a lot of, of emotion. And when I spoke to the same group of people sometime later, many months down the road, cause I was invited to a wedding of one of the people that were here. And when I went to this Mongolian wedding, I found out that this gentleman who I think was also at the wedding was as happy and healthy as can be and had never touched alcohol since that experience up here at my house. So I wanna say I've seen that happen. I myself have never done that kind of thing with anyone, but I see and heard the results. And I know there was nothing, you know, I know this man stopped alcoholism like that. I hope that answers the question. Very interesting. Well, it's a deep question, and I'm sure there are many other uh, techniques as well, because every shaman seems to approach things in a unique way. Like this particular shaman that you work with uses the whip. Uh, probably many shamans never use a whip. Well, I've only seen two that use the whip. So this, this my, the shaman who initiated me, Zagda, 
and this beautiful young shaman. I can't pronounce her name at all, so we just call her Honey. <laughs> Here's a question from Buddy Balder, who asks, can anyone become a shaman? I don't know. I, don't, I, I wanna say I don't think so, but it's not, I think it, it, uh, there are courses and things. I guess it depends what kind of shaman we're talking about here. If we're talking about a shaman that goes to, to like Michael Harner's um, uh, sh shamanic uh, course, which is over a few year period, and you go through intensive training, I think that you can be trained to learn different techniques to become a shaman. I think in that sense, yes, anyone could become a shaman if they were to attend some sort of a, you know, like that's the only, that's the only course I know of that I can actually recommend or speak about, but I have never, it was not something that I thought in myself, I would love to become a shaman. How can I do this? For me, it was an unfolding of events over a 10 year period that brought that whole shamanistic experience into my life and turned me into a shaman. So for me, I would say that, that was a different approach. And I did not attend a courses or this sort of thing. It was a um, like a transference of information because we don't speak the same language. And um, there are a lot of people that sell things out there for, you know, come and study with them and you'll become a shaman this or shaman that. I can't speak on any of those, whether they're really valid or not. I don't know, because I've never attended them. You know, I have no idea. Well, I do recall speaking about shamanism with uh, Stanley Krippner, who I know is a good friend of yours and has studied shamans for many, many decades. And he made a point of explaining to me that to really be a shaman, you have to be accepted by the community you're working with as a shaman that uh, shamans are not really separated from their communities. And so it, in a way you could say it's up to each community. Exactly. When we discuss our Weechol show, we're gonna find out what their requirements are of shamans, shaman training. And it's much different than say another culture's amount of time or what's required to become a shaman. Uh, I think, um, I'm not sure, but I'll have more accurate information, but I think it's a 20 year process that in their community, you're not accepted and respected as a shaman until you've gone through many, many years of training with other shamans and done a lot of shamanic you know, work, whether it's, you know, I'm not sure what the work is involved in that culture. In the Mongolian culture, I'm not sure exactly. I, I believe that there are, there are schools there where people go and study to become a shaman with different, in different shaman, um, uh, you know, whether it's a tuva or uh, Mongolians themselves. I don't know about outsiders going there and becoming a shaman in their community, but the people in the community. And um, as we talked about in one of our shows in Mongolia, excuse me, they honor the shamans. And when they have their Nadam festival every July, honoring the times and the games of Chinggis Khan, the shamans are all honored at the same time. And one representative is sent from each different um, 
group from the 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 Buryat, the one that I was initiated in, the Darkat. It's very hard for me to pronounce their names. The Khalha. The one person will be chosen out of all the different Mongolian shamans that have been trained in that area, and they will be then sent to represent each one. Here's a question from Erlin, or maybe it's Erlin. In the shamanic tradition in which you were trained, what is the understanding of the human soul or the composition of a human being? Wow. I don't know. I don't know because I was trained telepathically and not with any words. But I'm happy to write his question down or have you send it to me. And I will definitely ask and get an answer for that person. Okay, that's a very generous offer. Um, it's fine to say you don't know, and and but Erlen uh, can uh, reach out to me through friends at New Thinking Aloud, and I'll pass his message on, or he can probably contact you through your website. Exactly, and I'll be more than happy to answer him by speaking to my shamans in Mongolia who will ask someone that speaks English to answer for me. Very good. Okay, so here's a question from uh, Jessica Pacheco. Is uh, being bipolar, is that in any way a, 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 a part of or in relationship to shamanic waking? I don't know. I, you know, bipolar is a new word for me in the psychology world. I'm not sure if it's the same thing as being a schizophrenic, if that's a similar, you know, so I'm not sure uh, what the full definition of bipolar means. I thought schizophrenia meant that the person was of two. I'm not sure what the, I'm not sure the answer to that. I just know that some people who have been labeled schizophrenic or bipolar or some of these things are actually, some of the people really are dealing with the fact that they're more open to spirit and other, other dimensions, but the people that they're dealing with don't understand it, so they get labeled that way. I know I was labeled that way as a schizophrenic when I was a teenager because I told them that I heard voices and I, I saw things that, weren't, that were in the invisible. So I, you know, I don't think I'm a schizophrenic by any means. And I was glad I got out of that teenage therapy. But <laughs> I do think that there's some misdiagnosis in people because they're having spiritual things, not mental issues. Yeah, one of the problems, of course, is that these are just labels. They're just words and they'll be used differently by different people in different contexts and even in different countries. Mm -hmm. Here's a question from Andre Slavosh Krasowski, who asks, how do you deal with skeptics or scoffers? I mean, people who claim that what you do is nothing but superstitious nonsense. Do you ever get angry with them or go through such situations peacefully? I think I date back to the first 
Do you remember? I don't think he's with us anymore. I'm not sure. The amazing Randy, they called him. And he was considered like the skeptic during the remote viewing and these sort of things. So I know he's skeptic to me on some of the stuff that I was involved in at IONS and with Dean Radin and Russell Targ. And he was writing some skeptical things about all that. I didn't find it at all making me feel angry or anything like this. I thought it was great for someone to present another point of view. What I, I think what angers me more is actually the opposite people claiming to be, uh, you know, you know, people that prey on people's emotions and losses to make money for themselves by saying, oh yes, I can, I can speak to your dead father and I'll let you know what he says. And they get sort of, you know, they want, you know, the, the person wants relief so badly. And there's always these con artist types out there that prey on those kind of people. So that would be something that would anger me. But skeptics, it's as Dean told my daughter, because she was always very skeptical about whether her mother was psychic or not. Dean said to her, that's a very good quality to have because it means you're open and thinking and you're not accepting everything that's being said to you. So I think, you know, there's there's a there's a, a positiveness of skepticness. But when people say I, I was called those things when I was a teenager and doing medical diagnosis on stage. So back then they were making fun of me and, you know, some members of my family made fun of me. And so I really had to deal with that way back then. So by this point in life, there's, the, 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 you know, those things just, you know, roll off like water off a duck's back. I, I know from my own inner strength who I am and it really doesn't matter if these other people, I mean, I don't appreciate negative things being said or being told, oh, that's all crazy nonsense. I just appreciate being able to offer whatever it is that I can with another person when I'm doing a shamanic thing with them. And we have a question from Druon Nicholson, who asks, are shamans using PK or psychokinetic uh, abilities? I don't. I don't know the answer to that, but when I've seen some of the shamans working with fire and, and things like this of this nature or the amazing amount of energy and strength that could come from, and some of them are in their, you know, could be their late sixties or whatever, which, you know, I'm getting close to that too, but <laughs> the amount of energy that they're able to, um, uh, to, to exhibit shows me that they are then working with a different force than your regular nature. But I don't know that, that that's exactly PK. You're the professional when it comes to the PK. You know that you're the PK person. But uh, so I wouldn't be able to say that I actually saw anything flying through the air or any of this sort of thing. But I do believe that if there's PK in people walking around in Katadi, I'm sure that there's PK amongst shamanisms well that's a good way to look at it and uh Drewan also asked well you know about the pk man and he for example uh in the research i conducted uh with this individual named ted owens 
that ran from 1976 until he died in 1987, one of the things he was very good at was uh, working with the weather. And so many of his demonstrations had to do with uh, creating rain to alleviate droughts. Now, isn't that something shamans do? Now that I saw happening. I don't see that's why you need to explain the PK. I'm only thinking of them saying, okay, I'm going to move this fork or something. Yes, not only that, but why there was a shaman fight over it because we're in the gear. This was in the, the first uh, visit I went to Mongolia when I spoke at the first conference. I think Spirits in the, the Drum or something was the name of it. And there were different shamans there. And there was this older, amazing, gentle, sweet shaman that I, I have photos of him I sent with you with a long white, white beard. And he was just such a beautiful man. And um, he was doing some something or other. I don't know if it was a singing or a drumming or something. And the rain started to come down. And Zoritz Batar got all angry because we're having this conference and we're on a hillside and you really don't want it to be raining right then. And he's all angry and telling the shaman, it's because of you, that song you just did was the one that calls the rain. So now we've got rain. Now we got to do the calling of the stopping of the rain. So then there was a whole thing that went on. And then the, the Zoritz Batar shaman did some other thing. And sure enough, the rain stopped. So one shaman started the rain, one shaman stopped the rain. These things I'm sharing are experiences that I saw with my own eyes. That's that if that's what's called PK, yes, that I definitely saw that. Okay. And they were intended in that. It wasn't like an accident. They were intentionally saying, I'm going to stop the rain right now. The other man didn't mean to, but apparently his song was the kind that causes the rain to come. Eduardo Mendoza asks, what do you think is the place of shamanism today? For me, I have to say Mongolia, because I have never seen, um, I've never seen shamans, you know, honored and, um, uh, you know, represented in a country where they'd been repressed for so long and still kept, you know, some of these shamans are sixth generation it's so for me, they're like the oldest shamans in the world, and they have held on all these years and all these centuries. I don't know any Native American shamans. I know shamans from Peru, Russia, um, the in Alaska. Um, well, I don't know if they were shamans, but um, so I've met and in the Weichol culture. I've met shamans from the Hmong shamans from Laos, and I've met all these many shamans from Ruth Inga Hines's shaman conference. But um, so I haven't been to places in Asia to be able to say whether that's the shaman place. But for what I've seen and where I've traveled, Mongolia is, you know, and I think that the things and certain things in the language and stuff they find in Native American uh, Indians, shamans here, using tools or things or song or words that they can compare to originating from Mongolia. So I think that Mongolia spread shamanism way back, you know, a long time ago. The, those reindeer shamans we spoke about that live across the mountain um, on Lake Kofskul, 
in Mongolia, they all live in teepees and have lived in teepees forever. Maybe some of them traveled across the Bering Strait or wherever and came down into North America, whatever happened, and somehow teepees were brought here. I don't know. But I know their culture is much older than, um, say, the teepees that we've discovered here. I believe it's much older in Mongolia. Now, I suspect that uh, Eduardo might have been asking a little different question uh, rather than the geographic place. I think maybe Eduardo meant something like, what do you think, what role is shamanism going to have here in the United States? Well, it seems to be coming popular lately. Have you noticed that? And that, um, you know, when I was involved in this, you know, starting, you know, 20 years ago or somewhere, whatever, I went to my first conference uh, with Ruth Inga, but I had already gone and done healings with shamans in the Huichol Mountains of Mexico in the late uh, 90s. So, and back then it didn't seem as popular or I don't know what the mainstream, I don't know, where now it seems like, it seems much more out in the, out in the public or, and it also seems like everybody's a shaman all of a sudden. I don't know. Or everybody's a healer. Everybody's a shaman. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so I, I'm not, I, I, I'm just saying, I don't know. If I were to say who was the most open about sharing shamanic information in the United States, it would be, you know, going to Michael Harner's uh, shamanic uh, courses. Um, but if it were to be like, could you study with incredible shamans? I found the Mongolian shamans to be very open about sharing their information. In the middle of the night, I had this amazing professor who was also a shaman historian and, and amazing professor in, in Mongolia who was staying here. And in the middle of the night, he just came in my room, turned on the lights, and all of a sudden, we were going to learn all about how they hold the drum and how it's done. There were actual courses like this in Mongolia where people could study the, the entire way. For me, I'm not a good student. I'm a much better experienced, you know, observing sponge kind of person. I, I, that's how I learn better. So... Um, when I asked them about the lessons he had given me about the motion and how you're moving the drum in the room as you're playing the drum, they said, we don't need to tell you anything. He transferred all the information to you. So I, I don't know what to say because I didn't apply to take any training and I didn't know that I was going to do this, but this is the kind of life I live. Most people take, make plans, you know, <laughs> I don't, but you know, that's, but I, I'm just saying that. And, and I think that um, the beginning person should always read the book, The Way of the Shaman by Michael Harner. Okay, here's a question from Ron Thomas. Is the ability to manifest desired outcomes, is that a shamanic skill? I have always had that skill, so I don't know. I, I brought that into my shamanic experience already manifesting. And I don't know 
why or how. It's nothing I intended, but it's I I'm not sure I, I have some strange experience with being able to manifest things or material items by focusing attention on it and somehow these things manifest. I don't know what the shamans are doing with that. I just know that that's a, a tool that I've always just had available to me. Okay. And here's a question from Nate Grossman. What do you do to enter an altered state of consciousness in your shamanic practice? Well, for me, I'm trying to experience, say, a deceased person's spirit when they're here at my house and we're doing a shamanic thing together. What happens for me is that when I play this, this little jaw harp, it connects me to some type of spiritual energy or other spirit. It somehow puts me into a place of, it's like that's where my brain and regular thoughts sort of steps out of the way. And the sound of this jaw harp brings me into another, an altered state. Um, to be in an intense out of body altered state that I experienced when I was initiated. And that was many hours of chanting, dancing, and playing the jaw harp. And um, it was a very, you know, I was, there was, there's no question because we have a photo that shows how it's, it is to look when you're completely, you've completely surrendered and you're out of, you know, you're, you're out in the other realms. Um, that would be the best way. And for me also is, um, it's really just of having my intellect or whatever you want to call the brain things to step to the side and let the other information and the other experience come through. Here is a question from Mystic Gnome. Through childhood, is it common for those that are shamans to be attacked at night, psychic attacks, chronic insomnia, hallucinations, etc. Okay, I'm not anybody's world expert on shamanism here. I, I hope they have some other questions too, but <laughs> I can tell you that when I have spoken to different people, it seems that a shaman has had a little bit of a harder path often in life as they're growing. It may be a terrible sickness that they go through where they nearly die. It could be um, some sort of uh, thing like you're saying where they see in the night in darkness, they may see negative energies and things like this as a kid growing. Um, I do think that um, from what I've spoken to from some of the shamans I've known, the path isn't like an easy path of their life as they're growing. It comes with a lot of teaching, whether it's physical or mental or, you know, but there have been places in their body or soul that have been pushed to different points. Very good. And here's a interesting question from Sylvia Ruiz. Do your children follow your teachings and healings? Oh, my children. 
you know, children are always the best, your best uh, reporters or whatever. <laughs> and I can tell you this, because I have each one is dead three children and they're all adults. So um, my children had to grow up here in the house with me bringing all these shamans home. So they have participated and sat there through ceremonies. They've made fun of some of the shamans I've brought here. They've told me which one is their favorite shaman, which one's their least favorite shaman. They, um, they've brought their friends over and sat at my kitchen table and all teenagers making power tools that they've never done in their life. But I had a, um, a woman from Australia, a medicine woman come. And even though they're making fun, they're all sitting there making a rattle. So I have to say it's a mixed kind of thing. Yes, they participate, but yes, they're my children and they're going to make fun of me at the same time. <laughs> the other part is I've had shamanic experiences with, with them and or psychic experiences with them. So if can I elaborate on the three as an experience? So my daughter, Nancy, um, she was... Um, she was um, home here and I was in the mountains of Mexico with the Huichol Indians and I had just been asked to be a driver for them. I think she was about 10 years old. I was asked to be a driver for them to take them, the Peyoteros men, to San Luis Potosi, which is where they go. It's hundreds of miles away from where we are and it's where they go to pick the peyote. And nowadays you can't even do that because if a white person's face is seen there, they'll be arrested. You are not allowed to even go to these sacred place anymore to pick the peyote. Um, but back then I would have been allowed to go at that time. So it was a very big honor. And I was just thrilled that I was going to go drive these, you know, group of shamans and peyoteros to go pick peyote in San Luis Potosi. But that night I had this horrendous dream that my daughter Nancy was gonna be very ill and I needed to go home immediately. I got to a switchboard because in those days there was only switchboards to get a phone call through in the nearest town after you come out of the mountain. And I waited all day for this call to go through. And my husband says, no, Nancy's fine. Everything's fine. There's no problem. Stay, go to, you know, go enjoy yourself. I said, I can't. I said, I feel so intense that something's gonna happen. I have to come home now. It took another couple of days to get me to the airport and get all my, you know, to get out of there. And I think two days later, they were picking me up in San Francisco airport. My husband came, my daughter came. They got me. I put my stuff in the, in the, in the, in the car. She lay down in the back seat, and then she started to proceed to get sick. By the time we got home, she was complaining about pains in her stomach. And we thought she had some kind of flu. And we called the doctor and they said, well, touch her here or there. And we did. They said, oh, well, she didn't respond. It's not appendix. So don't worry about it. And then another day or two more passed and she, it looked like she was going downhill. And my husband rushed her into a doctor and they put her into a hospital immediately. And as they cut her open, her appendix burst in his hands. And there was so much infection in there. He said he could fill a soda can with what was coming out of her. And I got to be there because I followed my dream. 
And I believe dream is a part of shamanism too, because dreams is where we do work and where we get information. And I am so grateful that I was listening to what I felt in my gut from my dream and not listening to the actual facts that everybody was fine and there was no worry because I would have been completely out of touch with them for almost a week, not able to be reached by phone when all that would have happened. So they've experienced that firsthand. Mom has a dream. You know, they don't, they, they've seen enough of these things, but they'll still always make fun of me. (laughs) My son went with me to do an exorcism in a house in Chicago. And I was using, I was a Reiki master then. And so I had all been trained in all symbols of using symbols in my hands. And I had already started some, you know, Mongolian shaman things. And so I went there to cleanse this house that I had been to many years before and got freaked out by the ghosts or whatever the entity is that was in that house, scared the shit out of me. I ran out of that place. I wouldn't sleep there again ever. So I returned to the scene of the crime 10, 12 years later, and I bring my son with me. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we get to the fourth floor where I had felt that experience that many years earlier and my hair stands on end on my arms. And he's holding on to me, feeling everything like I feel. So my son and I are very in tune this way. And he knew what the same feeling I got of that there's negative energy here, though other people came to the house, slept there for 12 years. People came and went. Nobody had this experience in the room except for one other friend of mine. And so that night he had me lay with him until he went to sleep. And then he went out and I did the complete, it took me about two hours to cleanse this home from top to bottom, every window and door, and to ask whatever this energy was to please leave, to please leave. That afternoon, evening, when he came back in, he just opened the door and my son said, My mom did something. I can feel it. There's something different in this house. So he's always supported and respected me that way. And, you know, he's right there. It's not like he's questioning it or feeling skeptical. He's feeling it too. And the other interesting part about that was these people had been trying to sell the house for almost two years and they had not gotten one offer. And after I did the cleansing, two days later, a realtor brought in another couple and they bought the house. It was sold for 2.6 million. And this was back in the, you know, when that was a lot more money on Lake Michigan and, you know, Highland Park there. And um, so he saw me in action, so to speak, or something. Do you know what I mean? Then my last one, that's my skeptic. She's skeptical about <laughs> and by the way, I used to tell my children as they're growing up things about boyfriends or girlfriends that they'd be saying, how did you know that? I said, oh, and the mother drives a BMW and the son's like, how did you know that? I said, what do you mean, how did I know that? You know, I just know. But one day I said to my son, oh, you've done this today, didn't you? He just like blown away that they would know that I would know these intimate things. Well, my last daughter, Tasha, who's going to be 26 next week and my youngest child, <clears throat> She had some kind of bizarre thing that happened to her, and we don't know what it is, but if I look at it now, I think that 
some kind of entity or some kind of negative something entered into her young little child body. And she got very sick. And when we kept bringing her to the hospital, they couldn't find out anything wrong with her. And she was like starting to waste away and get kind of almost gray in color. And this went on for like a couple of weeks where she wouldn't eat. She would just sort of sit there in the front of the TV, just like listless, like she was like not there. And I'm getting more scared and more scared and more worrying. And we've taken her to doctors and we've done all these things and nothing is happening. And then one day she's sitting there on the couch like that. And something comes over me, which I can now say was shamanic, energetic from a place in deep in a well that's nothing to do with the regular gale. And I love my children. I don't scream at them. I picked her body up and with a, I don't know what was in me, but there was like this force in me. And I took her outside and the winds came up like powerful winds, like you would not believe. And I started screaming in her face, you are going to die. If you do not get out, whatever's in here, get out of your body. I want you back. I want my Tasha back. Get this stuff out. Screaming and the wind is like, it's like a movie set. And then I carry her back in the house. And within an hour after this experience, she says, oh, I want some food, mom. Oh, let's do this, mom. She came completely back as Tasha again. And my niece Valerie came over and she said, what happened to Tasha? I mean, everybody saw there was this complete change. Whether it was coincidental, whether I can't answer exactly that. But to me, it was a shamanic removal of something that was not a physical disease inside of her. That would be my take on this. Other people might say medical this or whatever. I don't know. And it so, so affected my niece when she saw this change because she lived on my property. That a year later, when I was going to New York, she said, when you go there, could you go see my boyfriend's sister? She came back from the Appalachian Mountains. She's very sick. They can't find out what's wrong with her. She's stuck there. I just know if you could just do what you did to Tasha, just go and do it there. And I wasn't sure what that was either, but she sent me on this mission. So my husband, David, we were in New York. And then he said, I think it's time we go to New Jersey to see that girl that, you you know, to see what we, you could do for her. And with the whole way he's driving the car and I'm saying, what can I do for someone? I don't know anything about these things. I can't help a strange person I've never met with their problem. But sure enough, we walked into this um, townhouse in New Jersey to this lovely, beautiful girl. And it was just like what happened with me with Tasha, where some other energy comes into me and takes over. And I'm yelling at this girl at the top of my lungs. You got to do this. You got to do that. You you can't be like this anymore. It was some impact. And at the end, her uh, uh, David and I just embraced her when we left and we knew something had shifted. Her parents sent me a thank you letter. She was able to like get onto the plan to get healthy again and to move on and get back into her life. She's now married. She lives with a wonderful man in Colorado and she lives a happy life, but something happened and that I would consider also like a shamanic 
removal. I don't know what the word is. I just know what the results are after. Well, that question about your children really. <laughs> sorry. I, I... Don't be sorry. That was wonderful. So That's I do say, you know, you know, they think their mom is whatever, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, here's an interesting question from James Sheffer. He says, if we look back over the life of a shaman, is it recognized as something that came with the incarnation and that training only works because uh, the person is, you could say, born to be a shaman? Okay. Now, I want to say in the Mongolian culture, there are generations of shamans and it's recognized, I believe, that the child will be become a shaman. I'm not exactly sure. So this is, you know, their history. And I, I, I just know when I was there, I would meet shamans that would say their father was a shaman or their mother was a shaman and they're, you know, so they would have a whole ancestral line of shamanism in their family. Um, I, my own personal experience was the reason I was initiated as a shaman was because Zagda said she saw spirits all around me and that I was, you know, like I needed to be initiated into the shaman, the, as a white shaman, a shaman of healing. And it was her vision of seeing spirits that made her feel I was supposed to become this shaman. I've also was told by a very famous um, scientist in Mongolia that I held the energy of the Chinggis Khan shamanism bloodline and that I truly carried shamanism in me. This is not something I would have ever said about myself or anything, but I have to say that since I was initiated, I felt that this honor of wearing these clothing and using these tools was like one of the most highest points of feeling like I was being seen and validated in my life. Okay, here's a question from an individual named John Furs. Have you encountered reticence or refusal from shamans who don't want to share their traditions with outsiders or with Westerners? The only time I experienced that was more with Native American shamans, where maybe you're in a ceremony or something. And um, uh, I remember there were certain different things when I was meeting some of the ones here where, you know, like if a woman had her period, she couldn't be in front of the shaman then because that was where she should be separated and sent away. But I have never been embraced or offered or opened up into the Native American shamanism or people of that here in the United States. It's my openness and, and, and teachings from other shamans have been from cultures in other places in the world. So, and they've been very, you know, but I, I, I think that, you know, I'm not judging in any way. I'm just saying that's been my experience that, that that's a very hard uh, 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 group to be able to 
enter in as a white blonde, well, not blonde anymore, but a white gray lady. <laughs> Mary Hitchcock asks, how do shamans spend their workaday hours of the week? Do they spend it in administration of upcoming events or meditation? And do they have a staff or circle of colleagues? So remember now, we're talking about many different shamans. And, um, you know, if anyone wants to switch child abuse, feel free. But <laughs> we're speaking about, you know, shamans in Mongolia, shamans in the Weechol. The, these are the two that I feel the intimate and most closeness of experiences with. Um, I'm sorry, repeat the question. It's uh, how do the shamans spend their days? Ah, okay. So I would say that that has to depend on the shaman. And that would also be depending in which culture, because some shamans like my, my like Zagda, she's working, she's speaking in places around the world. She's doing things, you know, with people continually training students. She's somebody that when she came here to the United States, it was from one shamanic ceremony and blessing to go to the next, to do the next one. She was working very hard. Um, another shaman may be a shaman who's only doing that on occasion. Or um, like for me, it's only when someone comes to me and asks for that then that's my, that's my experience. They come to my house and we have this thing, or I might be traveling to somewhere and I take some of my shamanic things with me and I'm in New York and I'm with someone who's not well or something, and I'll do some sort of little blessing there with them. Um, there are shamans there where it's a, like Zagda, I think it's probably almost a full-time job. Then there are shamans like the ones that are the professors where they're writing books and papers and research and doing their shamanic work and you know holding a job in in a university and and you know you know traveling to other countries so i would say the degree depends on what the person is what who they are in the wechol culture those shamans have to also till the soil and plant the corn and you know grow food they can't just be a shaman they've got to feed their families so they are doing their shamanic work, but I'm also seeing them go off to, you know, tend cows or take care of things that they have to, to survive in the place where they're living. So I don't think for them it's a, you know, and also it has to be with the respect that you have from the community, that if the community feels you're, you know, some shamans, they are not respected because they've done maybe negative energy to other people. And the people in the community know that that shaman did that to their friend or that person and they experience a, a bad leg or something happens to them. You know, they have a different feeling about that shaman. Then there could be, there's the shaman there in the Weechol who his job is to always sing and do blessings when you're like moving into a new home or starting something. So he would be called on maybe a different amounts of times, but, um, I don't know, you know, except for Zagda, I don't know, you know, that other shamans are doing that as a full 24-7 surviving on in the world way of living. I think there's usually always having to be some other thing that's your bread and butter. Uh, interesting question from Lily Gazoo. 
who is asking about you, Gail. What are, what are, are you going to travel and teach? How do you plan to uh, manifest in the world as a shaman? You mentioned that if, if people reach out to you for help, you try to help them. But what anything over and above that? Well, this starting in September of launching this podcast that I'm doing, uh, my whole purpose in this podcast is at each show, if just one person gets some sort of healing or information that helps them on their path, then we've done some sharing and good work. If more people get a good re- re- experience, even better. But um, that's what I would say is in my future is that I'm trying to share stories so that people can feel comfortable to share their stories, whether it's death, paranormal, psychic, shamanic, whatever it is. It's the fact that we have dialogue, like what you've been doing for the last 30 years. I'm just doing it in a very small way, but I'm finding that it is connecting me to amazingly wonderful people that are also helping me on my journey and my path. So it feels like a give and take in both ways. And so that would be, you know, that's part of what I'm doing right now. And then I'm also uh, planning whether it's, accepted by a publisher where my book is right now, or whether I end up going to self-publishing, but that this is the year that a small, medium, at large book will be will come out in some form so that I can share my full different selections of stories for anyone who might want to read and, you know, and maybe forgive somebody in their family for some kind of abuse or things that they've experienced. It's It's hard to know how you can hit a person in their, their heart or their soul. I only know that whenever I'm sharing things, I'm trying to be as authentic and from my, my heart as I can be. And, you know, we all make mistakes or say the wrong word or whatever, but our intention is all coming from a good place. Uh, here's a question from Brett Bernhoft. Uh, about, and I think you already answered it in part, about how can shamans of today integrate modern technologies into their practice? Well, I can't say that I initiated any modern technology into my practice, but I can tell you I used modern technology to do some shamanic work. And I was shocked how well it, it worked. Because I, you know, all of the things that I've always done is with a person right there with me and I'm in my shamanic clothing. Other things I've done, you know, what I call distant healing. And I've done that way before I was ever a shaman. So when I have friends or people I know that are ill or readying for passing, like my friend today, Hugh Trollson, I try to connect to them on a, on a spirit level and try to be there for them. And that's something that's, that I've always, you know, felt a, a kinship to, to always to be able to, you know, separate from your body and connect to the spirit of a person and send them as much healing or positive energy as you can to help them through their journey, whichever it is. Well, I had a friend that was leaving her home after 35 years, and she had lost both her husband and her daughter to suicide there. And I'd known her since I was five or six years old, but we hadn't seen each other that often through the years. 
but we got together on our 60th and had, you know, a whole little group of us together. So I wasn't sure how close I could connect into her because she's on the East Coast, I'm in the West Coast, but I wanted to help her cleanse this house before she shut the door on her final leaving of the place of the all the energies and the experiences of losing your husband and your child in this home, in the actual home itself. And it was a powerful experience with a cell phone. And what do you call it? The FaceTime thing where you can see the person at the same time. So I put the phone on a, um, a tripod and I put on all my, my shamanic clothing and I have a place in my room that's, I guess in the old days would be called a dorma or a dorm, dorm, you know, where it's a little extension out of your house. It's like where the window is and it just kind of juts out a little. And that's all covered in all my shamanic things. And it's like two sides and the window. And I have everything hanging there and all my drums and all my hatags and all my special things. And I sat in there and faced the camera and she went with her phone into every room in her house. And as we would go into each room, I would, I'd had her carry a candle and I did a, you know, jaw harping and um, drumming. And at each room I would experiencing things, even though I had never been to her house and I had never even met her, her daughter who was 19 when she passed, I was there. And I was able to tell her things that went on in the rooms itself and actually transform into feeling her beautiful daughter. And I only came up with a few statements and they were exactly part of the personality of her child. And when I came up with the things with her husband, it was such a loving and beautiful experience. And an hour and a half later, when she fit, we finished, she said, oh, my God, the buyers are moving in in 10 minutes. I thought we would be done. She had, we both thought it was five minutes, because when you go into that realm, there is no time. It is a timeless place, which I would then akin say is similar to remote viewing, because when I'm in remote viewing, I feel like there is no time. And I feel the same way when I'm doing shamanic work like that. So technology assisted me in being able to do this with her together. And I never even knew whether that could possibly happen like that. But it was very healing for her. It was a very ex teaching for me. And it was a beautiful experience. I hope that answers the question. <laughs> that, no, that was a wonderful story that did answer the question. And... I should mention, it, we're very close to the top of the hour, two minutes after the top of the hour. We're going to go for uh, until the bottom of the hour, another 28 minutes. Here's a question from Ben Vinar. Can the spirits alone train me in shamanism? He says he's between the first and second world, whatever he meant by that. So I'm still pretty clueless. I guess that's what he means. I, when I asked Handa how to play this jaw harp, she said, you just keep playing it. There's nothing to be taught. The spirits will show you. And 
I came out with another sound and I didn't know where it came from. And she said, that comes from the spirits. That's how they're teaching you. So I would answer that that way. Um, I can't say what this gentleman, or I think it's a man, is experiencing. But to me, if you're having positive, good energy spirits guiding you, what couldn't be better than that? I mean, that's a fabulous teacher. And to say whether it's a certain type of shamanism, I, I can't answer that. I don't, you know, I don't know. You know, as you know, if you want to be a Weechol shaman, you have 20 years of hard work to be able to get to that place. So it would really depend on which culture would say whether that you could do that on your own. I would think a, I would think a teacher would be a good assistant in that. Uh, here's a question from Kylie, who says, occasionally I see fast moving black orbs enter people or buildings. Being so dark, are these negative spirits? Is color indicative of positive or negative? Well, again, I'm not the foremost knowledgeable person on shamanism, but experientially I've had wonderful experiences and when it comes to that darkness that they're speaking about I have seen that and for me it was how I was told that there were sicknesses in people's bodies when there was a sick liver or a, 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 a damaged lung it would always appear to me with blackness around the organ so in my experience those kind of black things when I'm searching were usually pointing out that there was sickness there, which I would consider sort of a negative thing. When I've had some experiences where I felt like I had negative energy following me or feeling like I had spoken about a story in Mongolia, it felt like a dark mass. So I can't answer what other shamans would say, but that has been my personal experience. And that um, the thing is when you become much stronger, there's, you don't need to have fear around that darkness because you have your, your inner strength, but you have to acknowledge that darkness that it's there. So he may wanna say to any of those, I acknowledge that your presence is there and now I would like you to leave and take your negativity and, you know, leave my, my space or my body or my energy. Here's a, a question from a person who I think is asking for healing, Rohit Singh, who says, I always have sleep paralysis, possession by demonic beings in my dreams. What can I do? Well, I've, I have had that happen a few times and um, it can be an incredibly frightening, scary experience. And I wanna say that there are certain things you could do to just the same thing where you visually and verbally say out loud and wake up during that night, love that dream and say, I don't want you here anymore. I don't want these dreams anymore. I need to move on to a more positive and uh, 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 helpful dreamlike state, not one that's taking me through all of, of, of this negativity. Uh, this person may need to go see a 
a shaman or a healer or someone to maybe give him assistance and help to rid this out of him. He um, may also find that there are certain things that he could put in his room when he goes to sleep at night that can protect him from these things, whether it's a candle burning or you know a special small little light or certain things, flowers or things that make him feel protected and comforted so that in his room, he's creating like, you know, not exactly, he, he might make a little altar in the room and have this altar set up where he puts things there to protect him. If he's into Christianity or whatever religious things, or, you know, if he wants a cross or a star of David or any of those kind of objects that he would feel could help also to protect him. And then also he could try, um, you know, going to sleep with, you know, maybe some really beautiful music or things, you know, real positive kind of energy. Um, and uh, and he should not, he should not have dreams like that every night. That we're not meant to be doing that. So there's something there he needs to be working on. Okay. Bob Jones asks, is there any lore about shamans becoming evil in the same way that the North American medicine men become uh, skinwalkers? I recently did a whole program about skinwalkers. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with that term. No. Can you, can you, I've only heard it in a song by Robbie Robertson, I think. What is the definition of well? There's there was a lot of research about a ranch in Utah called Skinwalker Ranch, and it had to do with a legend of the Native Americans, the uh, Utes, and, and the Navajo that shamans uh, can become evil. Let's just put it that way, and do do bad things, leave their bodies, and I, I mean, I, I suppose another word for it is simply sorcery. Okay, so what is the question? Is that real or what is the question? Is the, the question, the way it was worded here by Bob Jones, is there lore about, do shamans sometimes become evil? Now that question I can answer. The law question I can't, I don't know the answer to that. Um, but what I can answer is uh, my own personal experience and an experience of my dear friend, uh, Julio. Julio's name in Huichol, of course I can't pronounce it, but it means uh, honey, because he was born with a sweetness that was recognized in his community when he was a little boy and carried on into his life into his sixties. So when I tell you he is one of the kindest, sweetest men I have ever met in my life, he has, you know, he is illiterate, he doesn't, you know, read or write, but he has a heart and a soul of a very pure being. And by the way, when he comes here to visit with us, my children all are, love Julio and we've known him for more than 20 years and I've stayed at his home. He stays here, I've been there. You know, we, we know each other's families. It's a deep relationship. Well, a couple of years ago, he came to visit and he was limping and, He's, he's a strong man. He walks in and out of the mountains. This is not a man that's out of shape. And I said to him, what happened to you? Why are you limping like this? Do you want me to take you to a doctor? And he said, no. He said, I'm limping like this because the shaman sent a negative poison arrow to me. And he said, 
invisibly, not that it did it directly in, in his body. And he said, he was jealous of me because I was coming up to the United States and he didn't want me to leave the community. So he did this, he put this negative thing in me to try and keep me here from going there. He said, but I just have to live with it. I have not been able to get it out of my body. It's now this many years later and he came to visit again recently and he's still limping. And I said, are you sure you don't want to go to a doctor to see if there's something wrong with your hip? And he said, no, this was all done by a shaman. And I have to live with this now because he gave me negative dark energy from his jealousness. So I can tell you that amongst Weichol people that they will say, yes, there are negative, there are shamans that are doing negative work. And when I was there and being protected by Miguel, the man that I traveled there with, he told me the first thing before I entered uh, the mountains, the sacred areas, he said, if any of my friends or people give you a drink or a tortilla or any kind of food, he said, I don't want you to eat it. He said, because the shaman could have put negative bad energy in there because you're a white woman coming into our place and they may have some sort of anger or something. So don't eat anything unless I approve of the person who gave it to you. So every time someone would give me something, unless it was a sealed soda or a sealed package, I would not eat it. I would put it in my bag, my Weechol bag, and I'd say, oh, so-and-so gave me these tortillas. And he'd say, oh, you can eat those. But if there was somebody who I shouldn't have eaten it, it was because they felt, and it wasn't just him, it was, you know, in the community to protect me from shamans that will do negative, bad energy things to you. On my own experience, I spoke about, in case the listeners hadn't heard the shows earlier, I spoke about that dark feeling of negativity coming at me from a shaman that I was working with who was my friend, Zoritz Batar. I don't know for sure, but I feel that there was alcohol involved in it. That was the sense I was getting when the negative energy was coming at me. And it was because I wasn't willing to um, do what he wanted me to do. I was supposed to do the things he said, like I wanted to go be in a hotel for a couple of days. He didn't want me to do that. And in the room there that night, I experienced one of the most frightening feelings of negative energy coming at me that's invisible, but even an actual bird threw, flew in the window at one o'clock in the morning and flew around my hotel room and flew out. So uh, there was something about what was going on that you can't speak words, but your body knows what's going on and it's not out of thin air really, even though it's not visible. So I do believe that there can be shamans, I think maybe that have done maybe both positive and negative energy things. There might be some who, I think in the Weechols, there might've been one or two where they feel like they sort of gone off the deep end and are in the negative place. But I can't speak for all shamans of the world or anything like, you know, the answer for that, their negative things. I really hope your listeners understand, I'm trying to answer as best I can, but you know, some of this information is all is in books that I have not read to be able to answer what these shamans think specifically. Okay, and we have fifteen more 
minutes. Here's a question from Ty Powell, who says, uh, are there any spiritual communities you're actively participating in at home or that correlate well with Mongolian shamanism? The only community that I've continued to be in is um, the Ruth Inga Hines community of shamanism and alternative modes of healing, which now has a different name since she's passed on. I'm not sure if it's called just shamanism conference, but because of COVID, I have not been able to, you know, intermingle with all these different shamans that used to come here to my house, shamans from all over the world. There's a, a center in the town near us, Guerneville, who brings in also amazing shamans. And I was able to go to some of their events. But because of COVID, the only communications I've had has been directly with my shamans in Mongolia. And um, I can't answer locally. You know, I just, there are things online that uh, people might be able to find during, uh, I don't have the exact name here, but we can always give it to you later. But Lucy Lewis is heading the, sh the shamanism conference now, and it's been all virtual. We're hoping that this next spring it will not be, and I will help participate with that. And it'll be up north from here in a beautiful retreat kind of area. But, um, you know, most everyone has, everything has become, you know, Zoom or being online. I prefer the in-person experience. And, and a related question here from Foreshore, who asks, uh, he wonders why psychics, he or she wonders why psychics didn't feel that COVID was coming, or did they? You would think they would pick up on such a thing. Okay. If he were to review some of the things of the work of Stephen Schwartz, Stephen Schwartz has done two different sections, or I don't know what you want to call them, section one and section two, where he's been asking remote viewers, I happen to have participated in this one, and it was remote viewing into the future. And he has thousands of people who have reported back to him things that, I'm not sure if they're on his website or exactly, but when he first had them remote viewing into 2000 and something or other, there are things that those remote viewers saw that have, have come to, I believe, have happened. Um, and it's a matter of him going, you know, going through all those different submissions of remote viewings and him gathering up the information of what was, you know, more universally stated by, you know, the, you know what was stayed, said the most in these groups of people. So there was a recent one that he did, that's his new one, which I think he has already 1500 already done. I'm not sure. And it was remote viewing into 2060. And unfortunately I had recorded it all on my phone. And when I got a new phone, it lost all the recording of it, but he remote viewed and I did this with him on video. So he has this in this group of things. And it was December uh, 15th, 2019. And when I remember and recall some of the things that I said, they feel like what we're experiencing right now 
even though he was asking me about 2060. So a couple of the things that I remembered, which I didn't know that it was gonna be a COVID thing or COVID was coming then, was that I kept remarking that he had me remote view when I was going to cities and country places all around the world. And when I would go to them, I couldn't find children anywhere. Like the children were all hiding or something. There was no children. And I couldn't only find them in like very remote areas where I could find like a family all together. And I was feeling like, like it felt like the cities were like drones or something. Like people had left a lot of the cities and it was all just sort of like drone-like people, like just going to their job or something. Do you know what I mean? And it was only in places that were like the country that I found that there was still life or familiness or a positive energy. And the only thing I note is that it feels like after that remote viewing that I did start to notice like everywhere as I went in, in, in the stores and things, like all of a sudden children were not out there anywhere. And I wasn't seeing kids when I went to shop and, and the world outside from my home was changing rapidly around me and people were becoming more in fear of each other that maybe they're gonna spread this disease to each other. Whether that remote viewing had anything to do with what came up, I, I can't say, cause I was looking into 2060, but my guess is that there are remote viewers out there that have documented knowing that these things were coming. I'm just not sure which, which person or where to say to, to your listener that they would find that information, but I do believe that there was that going on, I'm sure. And we do have on the New Thinking Aloud channel an interview with Stefan Schwartz. It's called Remote Viewing the Future. You could do a Google search or check our listings page and, and it'll come up. So, uh, uh, yes, people are able to look into the future and, and see things. And uh, as I recall now, one of the things that his viewers predicted back in the 1970s, before the AIDS crisis began, they, they predicted uh, the onset of AIDS. So these things are possible, but, it, you know, remote viewers and shamans are still human. They're not perfect. We right. all, Nobody we all has have 100%, right? <laughs> yeah. Druan Nicholson is asking Gail, what is the most impactful shamanic experience you have had? Well, I'm going to say my initiation was one because having grown up in the type experiences that I had, I had dealt with a lot of low esteem and there was something about the, the shamanic initiation that healed me of a lot of that feeling that I was never seen. And now I felt like I was being seen for the first time by this Mongolian woman but the most powerful, impactful one for me would be having cancer and working with the Weechol shamans uh, back in the 90s in um, the mountains of Mexico. I, I, I was raised in a family that was not conventional. 
And I had been raised to always believe that doctors were evil and that they were only there to kill you, not to help you. And if you go to a hospital, you go in, you're never coming out. These were the kind of things that, you know, and I was raised seeing amazing healings without pharmaceutical drugs and medical interventions. So I had given, been given a diagnosis that I had um, cervical cancer, but I didn't really believe I had cervical cancer because it was from a pap smear and I hardly believed in pap smears and I hadn't had one in five years, but somebody said, you have to do this, you have to do this. So I went and did the pap smear. And when they said I had cancer and I, that you have to have a biopsy, I didn't really believe I had cancer. And so, excuse me, I didn't have the biopsy. And instead I went down to Mexico to be with the Huichol Indians. And when I went down there, I had, uh, his name was Nietzsche, Nietzsche. And he was like, he's he was my friend Julio's shaman. So he was like, you know, they before you even go to a shaman there, it has to be their shaman or someone they feel is the right shaman. And he does a healing on me and he stops at my crotch and tells me, oh, there's a hardened mass inside there and you need to have it cut out. And I'm, you know, this is we chill into Spanish, Spanish to into me, you know, so he's, a, you know, we're trying our best to communicate. And it's that moment from that shaman that I believed I had cancer. Up until then, I, I didn't really believe that when they said, oh yeah, you, you gotta go in for a biopsy, it's showing bad, whatever. I was like, oh yeah, they just wanna make money on me. It's what my dad said. But when he told me it hit deep into my heart and soul, and I sat there on a mountaintop crying my heart out and I was depressed like you can't imagine being alone and discovering I have cancer and I can't even talk to anybody there because my Spanish is, you know, mas o menos, I'm not gonna be able to get into any depth, in-depth conversation. And my friend's father who was, he lived to, a, I think about 107 or something. He was a, considered one of the most respected men in their community because he still holds the traditional old ways and had not been influenced by, you know, Christianity or other things. And he gave me, he saw me crying and crying and he prepared for me something that I didn't know at the time and found out sometime later was the dried blood of the deer that is their cure for lumps or things or what healings of the body for sickness. And I ate it and I felt like superwoman for four days. I went from depression to feeling like I can do this. I will, I will get rid of this cancer. I will get, I will be healthy and strong again. I'm going to be good. And when I left there, I left there with such a positive attitude that I was going to go have my biopsy and, you know, address this whole issue. And um, I had originally been told that, you know, it would it could spread to the rest of your body if you don't have this checked out. And I waited a year before I went back to the doctor and he cut out this tumor uh, inside my cervix and half my cervix. And he said, and I was, I think, 34 years old at the time. And he said, I don't know what you did with your Indians. This is his quote. But you did something because this cancer has completely completely shielded itself with the skin all around it and sealed it. 
And so the tumor did not spread anywhere else in your body and you encapsulated the cancer. And I'm taking it out now with the cervix. And I, by the way, had two more children after that at home, you know, with a midwife, one and one with a doctor. And I had half a cervix and I was 35. So I gave birth almost within like a year of having the cancer removed. And then I got pregnant again at 40 and 41. I delivered my second, my third child underwater, both with half a cervix, both what's considered high risk births. And they came out beautifully. They were born as the, as the lady said, is what we call um, a perfect birth. So I feel that that's the most important thing that that shaman did for me, which is, you know, save my life. Very impactful ex experience, Gail. Thank you so much for sharing that. And uh, we're just about out of time. I want to share with you a comment from Jonathan Milgi, who says, please reassure Gail. She's doing a wonderful job answering these questions. Thank you so much. Jonathan, is that his name? Yes. Thank you, Jonathan. You made my evening. I won't be having anxiety when we hang up. <laughs> well, what a pleasure it has been being with you, Gail. Uh, we have like one minute. Do you want to share a final thought with our uh, viewers? It's, you know, I don't know how, how, how best you can do it. It's a time to be as positive as you can be in this world right now and to try and be as loving and as fear-free as you can be in these trying times. I think that's the most important thing we can do to get through this is to be positive. Think about the, 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 that, that, that it will be a happy and healthy future for us all. <laughs>